Welcome to God's Messenger Lighthouse Podcast. This is your host, Brother Scott Messenger, bringing you Chapter 11 from the book Jacob the Shazer, Forgive Your Enemies by Janet and Jeff Binge. This is part of the book series, Christian Heroes, Then and Now by YWAM Publishing. Chapter 11, Everything Was New and Alive. Jake and the other four Doolittle Raiders sat silently as the truck rumbled along. Little was said throughout the journey as they all contemplated what might be about to happen to them. Jake had held out the vague hope that they would be reunited with Dean, Will, and Harry, but these men were nowhere to be seen. Despite his best efforts, Jake found himself thinking about the three men's probable deaths and hoping that their executions had been swift. When the truck came to a halt, the men were transferred to an airplane, and a short while later, they were airborne. The flight lasted about an hour. When they landed, George and Chase, both trained navigators, whispered that from the landmarks they had been able to spot as they peeked out of the corner of their blindfolds during the flight, they were in Nanking, northwest of Shanghai, in Nanking, they were taken from the airplane to another prison. This prison, with its shiny metal doors and fresh paint, appeared to be new. But Jake's heart dropped when he realized that he and his friends were once again being put into solitary confinement. Jake braced himself for the endless hours he would have to spend alone again. He pondered a, a comment that Chase had made one day back at uh, King... Kang Wang uh, military prison, Chase had observed that the hardest thing to do was nothing at all. He said that the human mind and body were made to do things, and noted how torturous it became when that was taken away and a man was left with nothing to do. The only consolation for Jake was that he was put in the smallest cell, he presumed, because he was the shortest of the Doolittle Raiders. That the cell measured only five feet by five feet wasn't the good news. The good news, as Jake discovered, was that since the walls were only five feet apart, he was able to climb up them by placing his feet and hands on opposite walls. In this manner, he could inch his way up to the tiny vent hole window about ten feet up the wall. There he was rewarded with a view of the countryside. How wonderful! It was to catch a glimpse of people going about their business. Of course, he could climb the walls only when no one was watching. He had no idea what the punishment for such an activity would be, and he did not want to find out. Jake enjoyed another pleasant surprise at the Nanking prison. Since the prison, or since the place was so new, it was not yet infested with lice, fleas, or rats. Yet another surprise was in store for Jake at the prison. A short while after his arrival there, a desk and chair was brought into the cell and nailed down to the floor. In Jake's case, the desk and chair created a challenge to sleep around, but it was a challenge Jake was willing to endure to have a chair to sit on and a desk to lean against during the day. Jake fantasized about having a book to read or some paper to write on. During the past few, past few months, he'd 
composed a lot of poetry in his head, but it was difficult to keep all the poems straight in his mind without writing them down. In other ways, though, the new prison was a disaster. The men's food rations were cut to one small bowl of rice and one bowl of watery soup served twice a day. Also, the men were allowed to exercise together for only 15 minutes each day. The five airmen found a way to communicate with each other, despite the fact that they were in their own cells in solitary confinement. As part of their Army Air Corps training, each man had learned Morse code. The men worked out a system whereby a tap on the cell wall was a dot and a scratch was a dash. In this way, Jake and the others were able to send and receive messages from the man in the next cell. As the weeks in the prison slowly dragged on, Jake realized that the prison guards were almost as bored as their prisoners, and some intentions between uh, interactions between the two groups started to take place. The guards would brag about how the Japanese were winning every battle they fought, yet from the names of the battles, Jake could tell that the Allies were getting closer to the islands of Japan. Of course, this realization didn't make sense. If the Japanese were really winning the war, they surely should be storming the U.S. mainland by now. The fact that they weren't gave Jake hope that someday the Allies would win. When he mentioned this to the guards, they laughed and declared that it did not really matter to the prisoners who won the war. One way or another, they would never see their homeland again. If by some misfortune the Japanese did lose, the guards had orders to behead all war criminals before the Allies had a chance to find and liberate the prisoners. The long, hot summer gave way to fall, and then winter, the coldest winter on record, descended over Nanking. The men were given warmer clothes, which they wore over their existing clothes, but with no body fat, Jake found it impossible to keep warm. He also was concerned about Bob Metter, who showed up for exercise every morning, but was unable to do much more than lift his arms into the air. Over the past few, several months, all the men had noticed the deterioration in Bob's condition. Bob was severely ill and looked gaunt and weak. His hip bones stuck out through his pants, and his eyes were sunken and black. Jake guessed that Bob now weighed no more than 80 pounds. Bob looked more and more like a walking skeleton than a human being. By mid-November, Bob's condition had deteriorated further and his legs were swollen from very berry. Bob was able to make it out to the exercise yard each day, but once there, he was so weak that all he could do was sit and stare. Despite his condition, Bob never complained to the other men. He simply accepted his condition. It was obvious to Jake and the others that he was near death. On December 1st, 1943, Jake heard several men hammering sawing in the courtyard. He clam clambered up the wall and looked through the small window. What he saw chilled his heart. The men were building a coffin. Jake shut his eyes, hoping that his runaway thoughts were wrong, but they were not. The next day, the cell door opened, and Jake was led down the corridor to Bob Metter's cell. Inside was a coffin on top of the desk, 
and in the coffin lay Bob's body. The guards had laid a wreath of flowers on his chest. As he stared down at Bob's body, Jake wanted to weep, but he fought back the tears, not wanting to give the guards the satisfaction of seeing him cry. Instead, he looked stoically down at his friend. In the twenty months that they had been fellow prisoners, Bob was the only the one who had excelled at keeping everyone's spirits up, telling the others not to give up, that one day they would all be free. And now Bob Mitter was gone. Jake wondered whether any of the rest of them would live long enough to tell what horrors had happened to them since their capture by the Japanese. Back in his cell, Jake found his thoughts turning to an incident with Bob just a few weeks before. The guards had lightened up a little and allowed the Doolittle Raiders to weed the courtyard. Jake and Bob had ended up working side by side. Looking back on their conversation, Jake realized that Bob probably knew he was going to die. Bob had wanted to talk about God and why the war was dragging on. You know, he said to Jake, I do believe that Jesus Christ is the Lord and coming King, and that he is God's Son. God expects the nations and people everywhere to recognize him as Lord and Savior, and the war is not going to stop until Jesus Christ causes it to stop. The words had seemed to Jake to be out of place. Bob had a brilliant mind, yet rarely talked about his faith. As they weeded together that day, however, Bob was telling Jake that he believed God had it all under control. Pondering Bob's words took Jake back to his childhood, where he had heard his stepfather and mother say similar things a million times. Deep down, Jake wished he also could believe those words, yet Jake could not bring himself to believe. He had too many unanswered questions about faith in God. Bob's body was removed from the prison the following day. Several days later, his ashes were returned to the cell in which he had died and were placed in a small box on the desk. As the ashes were returned to the cell, Jake pondered how anyone, even Jesus, could dare to suggest that a person should love his enemies when his enemies were starving good men to death. Jake spent many silent hours contemplating what makes people of different races or nationalities hate each other enough to wage war. Perhaps he conceded the Bible did have an answer to that, this question and to all his other questions, but since he had no Bible to consult, how would he ever know? After Bob's death, Jake noticed a slight improvement in the conditions at the prison. Perhaps the guards didn't want any, everyone under their supervision to die after all. Two and a half cups of rice, as well as the bowl of watery soup, were now served to such to each man three times a day, along with a slice of bread at each meal. Sometimes this was accompanied by a cup of hot tea. What a luxury it was for Jake on these those occasions to breathe in the aroma of the tea and feel the hot liquid flowing down his throat and into his stomach. Sometimes there would also be chunks of some kind of meat in the watery soup they were served. Jake did not care what kind of meat it was. Whatever it was, it had protein in it, and his body needed protein if he was going to live long enough to tell the world how the Japanese had treated 
the Doolittle Raiders, they had captured. Beside the improved food rations, another surprise awaited the four remaining airmen. Books. Five books were handed out to the men. The Son of God and the Spirit of Catholicism by Carl Adams. The Unknown God by Alfred uh, Noes. The Hand of God by William Scott and the American Standard Version of the Bible. As each prisoner read a book, he would pass it on to the next prisoner via one of the guards who would slide it into the cell through the slot in the door. Jake read with gusto the books that were delivered to him. He even memorized a long poem titled The Pleasures of Hope from one of the books, and he would recite verses from it to the other three men during exercise time. But what Jake really wanted to get his hands on was the Bible. However, it was agreed that each man could have the Bible for three weeks before he had to pass it on to the next man. Of course, the officers went first, and being the only enlisted man, Jake had to patiently wait nine weeks before it was his turn to read the Bible. From the moment the Bible was brought to sell, Jake barely slept or put the book down. Despite the fact that the light in his cell was dingy and the Bible text small, the words seemed to leap off the page at him. Jake started with the Old Testament, reading it straight through, and then the New Testament, and then he reread it, and then he went back and read yet again those passages that piqued his interest. What amazed Jake as he read was how the Old Testament foretold the New, how the two dovetailed together to tell the story of Jesus. Jake was, so, was also deeply touched by the accounts of Christ's suffering at the hands of the Jews and the Romans. As he spent time reading and rereading the Bible, Jake became aware of a presence in the cell with him. That presence, he concluded, was God right there beside him, reaching out to someone who was lost, alone, and abandoned. The feeling overwhelmed Jake. Someone really cared about him. Someone wanted to lift a burden from him, lead him to a new life, and offer a new way of thinking and living. On June 8, 1944, as Jake continued voraciously, voraciously reading the Bible, he read Romans 10:9, Because if thou shalt confess with thy mouth Jesus is Lord, and shall believe in thine heart that God raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Jake had already read the verse several times before as he read through the Bible, but this time the words seemed aimed right at his heart. He knew he had to respond to them. Right there in his cell in Nanking, China, Jake bowed his head and prayed, Lord, he began, though I am far from home and though I am in prison, I ask for your forgiveness. As he prayed, Jake was overcome by a strange sensation. Despite the fact that he was a prisoner of war in solitary confinement in a brutal Japanese prison in China, his heart was filled with joy, joy like he had never felt before in his life. And as at that moment he would not have traded places with anyone, he knew he had received God's forgiveness. He was a new man. The horrors of prison life that surrounded him no, long, no longer had any sway in his mind, nor did death. Death was merely something to be 
passed through on the way to eternity with Christ, Jake DeShazer was now God's man. He might not have looked to the Japanese guards that much had uh, changed on the outside. Jake looked to them to be the same bed-wriggled American airman who had helped bomb their homeland over two years before, but on the inside, everything had changed. Everything was new and alive to Jake. During the remainder of his three weeks with the Bible, Jake managed to memorize many long passages of scripture, which he would recite aloud to himself. It also wasn't long before Jake had an opportunity to demonstrate to himself and the others just how much he had changed on the inside. Jake was beginning was being escorted back to his cell after exercise one morning when the guards slapped his back and pushed him, yelling, Haiku! Haiku! Hurry up! Hurry up! When they reached Jake's cell, the guard pushed Jake roughly inside, slamming the cell door behind him and jamming Jake's bare foot in the door. Before he could do anything, Jake felt the thud of the guard's hobnailed boot against his bare heel. Excruciating pain shot up Jake's leg as the guard kicked his heel yet again. Finally, Jake was able to wiggle his foot free and scurried to the far side of the cell while the guard turned the key in the cell door lock and walked away, chuckling to himself. Meanwhile, Jake sat in agony, cradling his throbbing foot in his hands. His first reaction to the guard's viciousness was anger and resentment and a desire to get revenge, but as he sat through the day and into the night reciting Bible verses aloud to himself that he had memorized and pondering Jesus' admonition for Christians to love and forgive their enemies, Jake knew that was what he had to do. Instead of seeking revenge for what the guard had done, he needed to forgive the man and reach out to him with love and respect. The next morning, when the guard came on duty and slid open the slot in the cell door to check on the prisoner, Jake said to him, Ohoyo, Gazamazoo, good morning. Caught by surprise by Jake's greeting, the guard just stood and looked at Jake strangely. By the look on the guard's face, Jake decided that the guard must have thought he had gone mad from being cooped up in solitary, solitary confinement, but nothing could have been further from the truth. Rather than being mad, Jake felt totally in control of his actions. He generally meant what he had said. The following morning, when the guard came on duty, Jake once again greeted him with, Ahoyo, Gazamazu. Day after day, Jake continued to greet the guard in the same manner, until one day the guard came to the cell door to talk to Jake. In the limited Japanese he had picked up during his time as a prisoner of war, Jake tried to have a conversation with the guard. He asked the guard how many brothers and sisters he had, and he asked him about his wife and children. He learned that the guard's mother had died when the guard was young, and that the guard prayed to his mother regularly, as was the manner of the Japanese. A report began to develop between guard and prisoner, and a few mornings later, the guard again showed up at Jake's cell door. As Jake went over to talk to him, the guard slipped a 
cooked sweet potato through the slot in the cell door. Jake was both surprised and delighted by the guard's action. He thanked the man profusely for the sweet potato and then sat down in the corner to devour it. Nothing he had eaten in a long while tasted as good as the boiled sweet potato did at that moment. As he ate, Jake marveled at how following the Bible's lead to love and forgive his enemies had indeed changed the situation between him and the guard. Next time, Chapter 12, In God's Hands. You can find this book and many others from the series by going to www.ywampublishing.com. Phone number is 800-922-2143. Again, join me next time for Chapter 12 from the book Jacob DeShazer, Forgive Your Enemies, written by Janet and Jeff Binge, part of the Christian Heroes Then and Now series by YWAM Publishing. In God's hands.